Well, this is normally the time in our service where we would say to all of our uh, grade schoolers who are third grade and under to head down the hall, but not this morning. You guys get to stay in here for big church today. Um, and by the way, whenever those kiddos stay in here, it's a little noisier, but that's all right. Um, that's just a part of life with children. Um, and so we're glad to have them in here this morning as we open the scriptures together. If you're a guest with us, whether you're online or here in person, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you've joined us. Um, if you are in person, there should be a guest card somewhere around you on a seat where you found a place this morning. Um, if you want to fill that out, we'd love to send you some inf- information about us, our congregation, answer any questions you may have, or pray with you or for you. There's a place at the bo- back of the room at the kiosk. Uh, there's a box there. You can drop that card on your way out. If you want to do it electronically, if you're online, you can find that on the homepage of our website as well and submit all that same information there. Our text this morning for our sermon as we continue this series working through the first portion of the book of Genesis is Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Genesis 3 1 to 7 it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it if you want to follow along there if you don't have a copy in front of you but if you do have a copy go ahead and turn there as we'll refer back to it as we work through the text this morning together. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 Moses writes these words now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Now, not every movie or song that I refer to from the pulpit is one that you ought to rush home and play on a family movie night, right? Or, uh, or in the car on the way home as you listen to music. Uh, but there are some out there that are works of art uh, that are great illustrations of truths. And this next movie I'm about to cite is one of those. In 1991, uh, a famous actor uh, by the name of Danny Glover starred in a film called Grand Canyon. And this is, again, this is not Disney Sunday night movie, okay? Um, but uh, in that movie, Danny Glover plays a tow truck driver named Simon. Uh, and Simon is called out late one night in order to go tow a vehicle of a stranded motorist who had broken down in an inner city urban area that was kind of rife with crime and gang activity. So by the time Simon shows up on the scene with the tow truck to pull the car to safety and take the driver where he needed to be, a neighborhood gang had gathered around the stranded motorist. And in the interchange that Simon, the tow truck driver, has with the leader of the game, gang, whose name is Rockstar, R-O-C-S-T-A-R, it's a great creative name, um, in this interchange, uh, I believe we find the answer, essentially the, the, or the question that we ought to be asking as we come to Genesis chapter 3. 
In this interchange, Simon speaks to the leader of the gang and he says this, I've got to ask you for a favor. Let me go my way here. This truck's my responsibility and now that the car's hooked up to it, it's my responsibility too. Rockstar says to him, do you think I'm stupid? Just answer that question first. Simon says back to Rockstar, look, I don't know nothing about you. I don't know nothing. You don't know nothing about me. I don't know if you're stupid or some kind of genius. All I know is that I need to get out of here and you've got the gun. So I'm asking you for the second time, let me go my way here. And Rockstar says, I'm going to grant you that favor. And I'm going to expect you to remember it if, if we ever meet again. But tell me this, are you asking me as a sign of respect? Or are you asking me because I've got the gun? And Simon says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. That last statement, everything is supposed to be different than it is, is one of the most profound statements I believe ever made on the cinematic screen. See, up to this point in Genesis, we have seen a perfect God call into existence a perfect world that He forms in the first three days and then He fills in the last three days of creation. And this crowning work of creation is to take the dust of the earth and to form a man in his image and take the rib from the side of the man and form a woman equally created in his image. These people that he has formed, he provides for them, he has relationship with them, he ordains a lifelong covenant relationship between them that we call marriage as we saw last week. And when we left off in Genesis 2.25, we saw the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. In other words, they were innocent and perfect in this good world that God had made. But by the end of chapter 3, verse 7, only seven verses later, they're now covering themselves with fig leaves out of shame. They were naked and unashamed. They realized they were naked and now they're full of shame trying to cover and conceal themselves. One theologian, Eugene Peterson, said it this way. He said, a catastrophe has occurred. We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning." We have been separated from it by disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. And then he says, we are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. When we look at the world around us, church, we all have a sense that the things that we see in the world, that they are not the way they are supposed to be. We look around and say the world ain't supposed to work. I know ain't ain't a word, but it ain't supposed to work like this. Everything is supposed to be different. This is a mess that we live in. Case in point, when we look at the world around us. Earlier this week, I turned on the news, which is a frightening prospect in our day and time. Only to see the report of the most recent mass shooting that took place in Raleigh, North Carolina. The shooting began in a residential area located near a river greenbelt shortly after 5 p.m. on October 13th. And according to the police, the gunman first killed a relative in their home. 
then went out into the street where he fatally shot a woman who was sitting on her porch and critically wounded another woman on the driveway of that same house. The gunman then proceeded through the neighborhood shooting and killing an off-duty police officer who was sitting in his vehicle. He then ran to a nearby trail system that ran along the river where he shot another four people, killing two of those. A canine officer responding to the scene was also shot in the leg, sustaining non-life-threatening injuries. In total, five people lost their lives in that shooting spree, and two others were wounded, and the suspect was a 15-year-old young man. We look at stories like this and we say, we are in the middle of a mess. The world's not supposed to work like this. Supposed to be able to sit on your front porch without worrying about somebody coming out of the door and shooting you. Everything's supposed to be different. So the question is how did we get here? How do we get to the middle of this mess? See, any worldview, any way of understanding the world around us must give an account for not only how did we get here and why are we here, which are separate questions, by the way, which we've looked at previously, but it must also account for the realities that we experience in the world in which we live. In other words, it's got to answer the question, why are things the way they are? Okay? How did we get here? Why are we here? Why are things the way they are today? And this morning as we move into Genesis 3, I think we find the answer to the why are things the way they are question. Because the Bible gives a very clear answer by saying that sin has corrupted God's good creation. That's what's taken place. Sin has corrupted what God had made good and turned it, distorted it, in the way that we experience it. Now, this morning, what I want us to do in a... In a, a, a look, I'm aware that we got kids in the room, and so I'm going to be as short as I possibly can as we try to look at the essence of sin and try to break it down as simply as I possibly can for us this morning. But we're going to dive into Genesis 3 for a few more weeks. But what I want us to do this morning is to consider what sin is, and then second of all, what God does about it. Okay, so the first question, what is sin, church? Listen, sin is, and these are not going to be up here, so you have to listen really closely, okay? Those of you note takers, all right? What sin is, sin is building an identity apart from God. That is the essence or the nature of sin. It is to build an identity apart from God. Back in chapter 2, we saw that the Lord God, our covenant creator, right? Yahweh Elohim. He had intimately and intentionally formed mankind. He prepared a delightful place for mankind in Eden. He planted a beautiful and beneficial garden to bless mankind. He establishes purpose and meaning for mankind and he gave freely and generously to mankind in other words he's done everything that humanity needed in order to flourish and have a full existence in relationship with their creator and yet when we turn the page to chapter three we see the world beginning to unravel as our first parents Look at verses 5 and 6 whenever the serpent comes to the woman and how she responds. The serpent 
says this to the woman, for God knows about speaking of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. There's two statements in those two verses that give us insight into the nature of sin. The first one is in verse 5 when the serpent said to the woman, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the assumption is apart from him. Apart from him. The second statement, Moses tells us that the woman, when she saw the fruit, was desired to make one wise. Wise for what? For knowing good and evil, apart from who? God. She took it and ate it and gave some to her husband who ate as well. Now we saw a few weeks ago that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it represented humanity's attempt to establish a moral framework and an ethical foundation apart from a proper orientation of a relationship of trust in which God's will and His Word were very clear. Simply put, the tree represented our attempts to be wise in our own eyes. Which, by the way, the author of the Proverbs in chapter 3, verse 7, warns us against. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. And the contrary to that is to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So you're moving toward evil as you move toward being wise in your own eyes. Right? That's a movement toward evil and away from God. Establishing an understanding of what is right and wrong. What is appropriate and inappropriate? What's in bounds and what's out of bounds apart from God? You will be like Him. In other words, we could be wise by ourselves. We could be, see if I can illustrate it for you this way, we could be our own little magic eight ball, right? Some of you remember that toy, perhaps from whenever you were children, right? You remember the magic eight ball? You could buy that thing at Target or Walmart or now you could probably order it on Amazon. But the magic eight ball was this fascinating thing because the magic eight ball like had like a, 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 a was, it looked like an eight ball in pool, right? Um, but it had a little window and it had a bunch of like watery dye floating inside of it along with these little cubes that would float around the little window and you could shake up the magic eight ball and then this little cube would come, you could ask it a question like, Will I ever get married, right? It's a great one, right? Shake the magic eight ball, and then it comes up and it says, maybe, right? <laughs> right? Or, will I go to college? Shake the magic eight ball, and it says, certainly, right? So it has all these little one-word responses to all the questions you could ask it, right? And so you could de- determine and dictate your, the course of your life by asking the magic eight ball, shaking it, and getting an answer, right? About what the next step should be, about what path you should take. And listen, all of our attempts to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that our first parents do, which is what we do as well, to build this framework of our understanding ourselves apart from God is, like, is as silly as us taking the magic eight ball and asking us, should I marry the person that I'm dating in high school in the first dating relationship I've ever been in and shaking that thing up and it says yes and going, that is the will of God for my life, right? It's that silly. 
Is that silly for us to try to build an identity and an understanding of who we are apart from God? We laugh at the magic eight ball, but we do not laugh at this. And it's the same thing, church. It's the same thing. It's the essence of sin. Determining how we should live, what we should do, what our next steps should be apart from a vital, intimate, dependent relationship with God. It's the essence of sin, building your identity apart from Him. Understanding of sin, because oftentimes what we understand whenever we hear the word sin is that sin is the breaking of a rule. Now, I want to be very clear this morning. Sin is, does include the breaking of a rule. Right? You with me so far? Okay. Listen, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, God issues a command. He gives a rule. He says, you, sh- you shall surely eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He gives a command. And so, lo and behold, our first parents break the command. They break the rule. Kids, how many of you have rules in your home? None of you. Okay. (laughs) Parenting seminar next weekend, right? Let's try that again. Kids, how many of you have rules in your homes, right? All right. Just a few of you, right? Some of you are no holes barred. All right. I get it, right? Some parents are raising their children's hands up in the air as we speak, right? Okay, so we have rules in our homes, right? What happens whenever you break those rules? When mom says, don't do this, or dad says, you should do this, and you don't do it, or you actually end up doing it, right? What happens? There's consequences to those, right? Because you were disobedient. And sin indeed is a degree of disobedience. It is the breaking of a rule, the violation of a command, You see it all throughout the Bible this way as well. But if you only understand sin in relationship to its judicial aspect, as I broke a law or I broke a rule and now there's a consequence that must be paid, then what you can end up with is a very legalistic framework and understanding of a relationship with God. Because the Bible not only speaks of sin as the breaking of a rule, but it also speaks of sin as the betrayal of a relationship. The betrayal of a relationship. Look at what the text says in 3.6. Our first parents, if they were to obey God, the command that He had given in 2.16, then they had to trust, listen, they had to trust that God's good design was better than their desires. They had to trust that. They had to live in this relationship of trust and dependence upon God. Saying, what God has designed is better than what I desire. When my desires go against His design. In Genesis 3.6, we see that our first parents, what they choose to do is elevate their desires over God's design. So they see that it's desire to make one wise. They could be like God, knowing good and evil apart from God. So they begin to take that step of disobedience and in so doing. But before they ever take, sorry, before they ever take that step of disobedience, they've already have seeds of doubt that they can't trust God in their hearts, that He must be withholding something from them. Right? Some of you kids in the room, right? that's what you think your parents are doing. <laughs> right? Whenever they say, you cannot have the cookie at 5.15 
in the afternoon because dinner's going to be served at 545. You think they're just trying to withhold the deliciousness of the chocolate and the sugar and the flour from you. But what they're trying to do is set you up in a position to be successful and fill your belly with good nutrients, things that are going to be nutritious for your body so that you're not full on the cookie. So when it comes time to eat the meat and the vegetables, can I get an amen, right? That that you actually are full, hungry and ready to eat, right? They're not trying to withhold something from you. They're trying to prepare you to receive something better. And yet whenever we look at God... And our first parents look at God in, the, in, in Genesis 3. They, they see that they, 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 they approach God. We said a few weeks ago that this is the place in Genesis 2 to 4 where Moses does not use the personal covenant name of God in this interaction, this dialogue between the serpent and the woman. Because the serpent is presenting God as one who's just trying to withhold something from them. And the woman swallows that hook, line, and sinker. That God is not trying to withhold, just withhold something from us, but keep us for something better. That's what's going on in the text. And yet they did not trust God's good design. That it wasn't satisfying enough. It wasn't pleasurable enough. They stepped out on their own desires to build their identity apart from this relationship of trust under God's authority. They wanted to know for themselves to be their own woman, to be their own man. Find themselves outside the parameters that God has set. So they betray the relationship and they break the rule. It's not either or, church. It's both and. In fact, Martin Luther, guy who lived a really long time ago, okay? This is what he said about the, first, about the Ten Commandments. He said essentially this. He said, the first commandment. Anybody know what the first commandment is? Thou shall have no other what? Gods before me, right? right? This relationship that we ought to have with our covenant creator. Have no other gods before me. Luther said, listen, if you, if you break commandments two through ten, you've already broken commandment one or you're in the process of breaking commandment one because whenever you break the thou shall not murder rule or you break the you shall not commit adultery rule or you break the you shall not covet rule, right? Or you shall not steal rule. You've already violated the first commandment because there is something that is more central to your identity than God. It's more important to you than God. Whenever you break one of those other commands, So they're all bound together. You cannot understand sin just as the violation of a rule or the breaking of a law, but it's the betrayal of a relationship because you're not trusting that what God has designed is better than what you desire when those two things conflict with each other. Is anybody with me? All right, so throughout the Bible, you see this show up in the way that the prophets speak about Israel's sin. Because time and time again, they're not just going to say, hey, Israel, you broke the you shall not law. What are they going to say? They're going to say, Israel, you committed adultery. You were faithless. You betrayed your covenant king. You ran around behind his back. You went up on all the high places and there you we got kids in the room, okay? You did things that were not appropriate with the gods of the other nations. 
That's, what that's the language they're going to use over and over and over and over again whenever they call Israel out on their sin. And so this relational aspect of sin is so vital and important to understand that before you ever break the I, you, you, right, be kind to one another rule, there is something going on in the heart that is not trusting that kindness is God's design. So may I ask you a question, church? If, if the essence of sin is building your identity apart from God, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? There are many in our culture, and we'll look at this more in weeks to come as we talk about the effects of sin in our life, that are building their identity on their feelings how they feel internally rather than what God has made them biologically and externally. But I want to press into another one this morning because I believe there are many individuals in our culture and I have fallen into this bucket on multiple occasions in my life who are building their identity upon their achievements, upon their accomplishments, upon their awards, upon their promotions, upon their positions, upon their possessions, upon the things they could achieve. And listen, there are so many people that I talk to who have lived on that hamster wheel of achievement in life. And so much of it, can I tell you, it comes back to having not received affirmation, not having received encouragement from the father figures in their lives. And so they're on this endless quest to build an identity, not receive it from God, but to create it and conceive of it themselves by what they can achieve. All because what they're, 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 they've, they're trying to fill a hole that was left by an absence of a father who was breathing life into them. So they say, I can prove the kind of person I'm going to be. I can show the world how successful I will be. And listen, that is building an identity apart from God. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to backfill a hole that was created. That Even if you had the best father in the world, you could never build your identity upon his affirmation of you. So the hole was created by something that would have left a hole for you as well. And the only thing that can fill that hole is indeed your covenant creator. So what are you building your life on? What, one, one way to answer that question is to ask yourself this question. Whenever things below my feet become very unstable... And the world around me begins to shake. And I feel like I'm on the deck of the Titanic and things are sinking. What do you run to for comfort? Where do you look in the midst of distress? If the answer to that question is Netflix. Okay? Or shopping. 
you laugh. These are real world issues. Is, is distractions from entertainment or medication at the mall? I know it's not the mall anymore, it's clicks on Amazon. But if you're distracting or medicating and not looking to God for healing in the midst of your distress, then there's a good chance that you're building your identity on something other than Him, apart from Him. An understanding of yourself that doesn't include Him at the most basic realities of human life. What are you building your life on, church? Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. That's the first thing I want to see. The second thing is going to be, is going to be this, and it's going to be a lot quicker, and we're going to come to the table together. Second thing is this, what does God do about our sin? When our first parents step out to build their identity apart from Him and say, we want to be our own people, know for ourselves what's right and wrong, build a moral framework apart from you in a relationship of trust, what does God do about it? He covers it. He covers it. This is beautiful. I didn't read all the way down through verse 21 earlier. We're going to take a look at more of the text next week. But I want to read verse 21 to you now. It comes after all the judgments and consequences on sin are pronounced. After the man and the woman try to take fig leaves and sew for themselves loincloths, the most itchy leaf on the face of the earth, to go in the most sensitive places on the human body. Right? This is wild. God finds our first parents in this condition, having tried to create coverings of their own, and there is a glimmer of grace in this dark shroud of sin and judgment, because in verse 21 it says, and the Lord God, the covenant creator, Yahweh Elohim, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, whenever their eyes are opened and they recognize their nakedness, their first instinct is the same as yours if somebody barges into the bathroom before you've gotten dressed, is to grab the towel and wrap it around you. It's the first instinct, right? When you have little kids, it happens all the time, okay? To cover up, to conceal. But their coverings are not sufficient for them. And listen, that is true for you and for me as well. Everything that we try to do to cover and conceal our sin and our guilt and our estrangement from God and our shame is ultimately like fig leaves. They're completely unsatisfactory and insufficient. But I want to tell you something this morning, church. The good news is that God has provided a covering for you just as He did for them. He provides sufficient coverings. He takes an animal, and I don't know, there's all kinds of debate among theologians about whether animals had died up to this point in the garden, like if death had entered into the world just not for humanity, right? You can debate that all day long, but what is clear in the text is that God does something with an animal that had not yet been done in the skinning of it and providing coverings for the man and the woman to replace their coverings 
over their sin and over their shame. And those coverings that he provides are a picture of another set of clothes that would come later. In Psalm 32, David writes these words in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The person who's blessed is not the one necessarily who lives a perfect life because those people don't exist subsequent to Genesis chapter 3. But the person who is blessed is the individual whose transgressions are forgiven because their sins have been covered by God himself. In Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, the Apostle John has this great vision into the throne room of heaven. And what he sees whenever God peels back the layer of the material world to see into that spiritual order is this. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're giving glory to the Lamb who was slain, who was seated upon the throne in all of His majesty and splendor and beauty. But notice, they've got clothing that they did not weave or sew for themselves, but these white robes which represented the saints, the purity of God's people, because they had been covered with clothing given to them by God, just as our first parents were in the garden. And this clothing that they were covered with was indeed the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself clothed in the perfection of Jesus. And notice, listen, in the garden, the man and the woman, they didn't have to go seek out the sheep and gut it and do all the work and sew it up, create the garments and put them on. All they had to do was receive the garments that God had made for them. They didn't have to work to create them. All they had to do was take their fig leaves and exchange them for these garments of skin. And listen, church, I will tell you that God's covering for my sin and yours works the exact same way. All you've got to do is give up on yourself and all of your efforts to cover and conceal your sin and that God would clothe you with the righteousness of Jesus himself in a pure white linen robe. So that you and I might be like those that John sees gathered around the throne of God. Giving praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. Who covered our sin with his righteousness. That's the good news. Sin is building your identity apart from God. At every juncture, underneath every broken rule, every broken command, every broken law. There is a betrayal of that relationship in an attempt to say, God, I can be my own person apart from you. But in every instance, God covers it if we would but receive it. You can reject it. You're free to do so. You can keep walking around with your little fig leaf loincloths. Which will burn up in the judgment to come. And expose you to eternal shame. But 
if you were to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ by giving up on your attempts to prove to God by your achievements and accomplishments, by your obedience that you're somehow worthy of His salvation, that you could just receive these white linen garments clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and have your shame dealt with forever. It's your choice. In a moment, we're going to sing together and we're going to come to the Lord's table as a reminder of the blood of Jesus that was shed, of the body of Jesus that was broken so that we could be clothed in His righteousness. As the band comes now, they're going to receive the elements as they come to lead us in song before they come up onto the platform. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, right, someone who's given up on their fig leaves and exchanged those right, for sufficient covering that God can provide through His Son, Jesus Christ, and we invite you to come to the